This evening what I'd like us to do as we look together at God's word is to take the second in a short series of four themes, uh, sermons on four themes, which we have looked at more or less about every 18 months over the last 12 years. Not quite, but more or less. And we do it because there are four key issues, four key doctrinal themes, if you like, that it's important for us to revisit, to get a grasp of, to help us in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Um, Last week we looked at how it is a human being, a person can say with confidence that I am accepted by God. What we were doing was, in a sense, looking at the doctrine of justification, but we were looking at it in those terms. How is it that a human being can say, I am accepted before God? And we concentrated mainly in the opening chapters of the book of Romans, and particularly in Romans chapter 3. You might like to turn to that just as we recap briefly in that part of last week. You'll find it on page 1131 in the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. And how after Paul has um, explained the nature and the reality of human sinfulness, says in verse 21 of Romans 3, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. In other words, a way of being right with God, which doesn't depend on keeping the law or doing good things of ourselves, because as as he has explained, all our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Verse 22, this righteousness, this way of being right with God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's how it happens. That's how we know we can be right with God. That's how it's possible for a human being to say, I am accepted. And there's no difference. No difference between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor or whatever. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, are made right accepted by God freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the way it works. And in practice what it means is that God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Jesus took our place. And it's on the basis of that, as we put our faith in him, that a human being can say with confidence, I am accepted. Because what Jesus did at the cross settles our position before God as we come and put our faith in him. What he did on the cross settles our relationship with God as we come and become followers of Jesus Christ. And it has no degrees, it's all of God's grace, and it means that the Christian can say humbly but confidently, I am accepted, not on the strength of my own performance, not on the basis of my own goodness, not on the grounds of my own good works, but on the basis of what Jesus did for me when he died on the cross. As one of the people we were referring to last week put it, we start each day with our personal security, resting not on the level of spirituality we have attained or the degree of our achievements in Christian service, but on the knowledge that God has accounted to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Which is why Kendrick's hymn says, The price is paid. Come, let us enter into all that Jesus died to make our own. More than enough for every sin he paid and bought our freedom from each guilty stain. The Bible's teaching on justification is a powerful, radical and even a scandalous message. And it raises questions, legitimate questions. And one of those questions is, 
So then, what's the Christian's relationship with sin? There's a great danger that if you concentrate only on the message of justification, that people may misunderstand what you're saying and think, well, it really doesn't matter what I do if everything was settled because of Jesus' death on the cross and how I live doesn't matter and I can sin and do what I like with impurity because grace covers everything, which was, in fact, the accusation that was levelled against the Apostle Paul in his own day. So radical and so scandalous was this message of justification by faith in Christ that this is exactly what people accused him of, of saying he's immoral because he's saying it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how much you sin. Which is what takes us to the doctrine of sanctification. Justification is what God does for us through Christ's death on the cross. The idea of sanctification is what God does in us as a consequence of our faith in Jesus Christ. Justification talks about how we're put in a right relationship with God. Sanctification talks about how we exhibit the fruit of that relationship in a life separated from a sinful world and dedicated to God. I'm sure most of you here have current accounts of some kind or another, whether you carry checkbooks anymore or just your debit card or whatever. Um, But if you imagine that the way you could think of this is that you have an utterly impossible overdraft in your current account. For some of you, especially the students among you, that's probably not too hard to imagine. Justification is when someone comes along and wipes out the overdraft. You could never manage it yourself. You're never going to be able to recover the situation. You're never going to be able to earn enough to put yourself in the black again. Justification is when the overdraft is wiped out for you, which is what Christ did in his death on the cross. Sanctification is when someone keeps feeding money into your account, like your father probably, if you're a student, which allows you to cover your standing orders on a daily and a monthly basis. It's that ongoing provision of God's grace that allows you not simply to live with the overdraft cleared, but with the capacity to continue on in the future. Not a perfect illustration, but maybe it helps. Justification allows us to say, I am accepted. Sanctification allows us to say, I am delivered. Delivered from the tyranny of sin by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Not delivered from the experience of sin, because I won't be until I am made to be like Jesus, as John talks about. But I am delivered from the hopeless tyranny of sin that would simply destroy me. Sin itself is a concept that's very much out of fashion. Some years ago, David Wells, in his book, Losing Our Virtue, uh, spoke about this. He had a very interesting and helpful perspective on it, I think. He talked about how uh, in our society uh, we are moving uh, away from uh, different kinds of uh, aspects of how we think about things. We're moving away from virtues to values. We have values, but we don't talk about something being virtuous anymore. We move away from character and our uh, responsibility to develop and think about our character as human beings to personality, and we put everything on personality. It's really not our fault. He said we're moving in our society from a concept of guilt to a concept of shame. Shame is okay when something is wrong, but we don't want anybody to carry a sense of guilt. What he says is 
an analysis of the contemporary person adrift in moral understanding in which has tried to dissolve guilt into shame and to treat shame as simply a human malfunctioning. The new preoccupation with shame, however, really reflects only an attempt to secularize guilt. It therefore looks for help not from atonement, but from psychological technique. As we change the language in our society and the way we think about things, we subtly move away from the need to atone for guilt to simply get us fixed because we're a bit ashamed of a few of the things that we have done. And in our changing world, its relativeness and its godlessness influences our thinking too as Christians. And sometimes, therefore, we hear the message of justification, we rejoice in it, but can become careless and indifferent about the nature and the quality of our lives as Christians, which is why we need to think about this doctrine of sanctification. There are three things we can say about the Christian's relationship with sin. The first one is that the Christian is not yet finished with sin. Think of what it says in Romans chapter 7. If you'd like to just turn over a few pages there. Um, The Apostle Paul in this very interesting passage in Romans chapter 7. And and if you get the chance, if you haven't ever done it, make sure you sit down and you read from Romans 1 right through. Certainly to the end of Romans chapter 11 in, in one go. And then from 12 on to see how it's all applied. To get the drift of Paul's argument. Paul's trying to cover all the possible angles Um, as he thinks about this subject of what it means to be put right with God. And in verse 21 of chapter 7, he says, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He acknowledges um, that sin still lives within him. Verse 17 of the same passage, that's actually the language that he used. He knows that nothing good lives in him by his human nature, his sinful nature. And as Christians, it's important that we face the facts and the nature of sin. We mustn't substitute words like shame simply for concepts of guilt and sin and wrongdoing. Because as Christians, we're not yet finished with sin. We've got to come to terms with that, we've got to recognize that, and we've got to be honest with that. The second thing we can say is that we cannot live indifferently to that which caused Jesus to go to the cross in my place. We cannot live indifferently about sin. Just in the preceding chapter, in Romans chapter 6, Paul has been setting out how we should think about our relationship with sin. And he uses baptism as an illustration. And those who have been present at a baptism here will know that it's it's radically different from baptism as practiced in some other traditions. But here it's practiced by total immersion and its symbolism is rich and significant. Look at what he says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And in verses 10 and 11 he says, In the same way, in the same way as Jesus died to sin once for all and now lives to God, count yourselves dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in you. Do not offer the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness. This is the theme that Paul develops in quite a few of his letters and in his teaching, that a Christian cannot live indifferently about sin. When he's writing to the Colossians, for example, in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14, he says to them, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with all its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So he explains the whole process of how we are put right with God. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, which becomes quite an extended passage on this issue, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The third thing we can say about the Christian's relationship with sin is that the Christian is no longer a helpless victim of sin and its consequences. Not only is the Christian saved from the punishment for sin because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but the Bible tells us that God is actually at work in the life of the Christian, making a difference. Paul puts it this way when he writes to the church uh, in Philippi. He says in chapter 1 and verse 6, God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. He says in verse 14 of Romans 6, the passage we were looking at just a moment ago, sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. The Christian is no longer simply locked under the tyranny of sin. We are no longer its helpless victims. Possibly one of the most helpful passages on this whole theme is in the book of Hebrews. You might like to turn over to page 1202, um, to Hebrews chapter 2. Page 1202 in the church editions of the Bible. And a passage that's well known. I want to read two short passages here. One from chapter 2 and one from chapter 4. Chapter 2 verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And if you turn over to chapter 4, verse 14, which is just on the page across there, page 1203, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are not abandoned. We are not simply left here to our own devices. We are not left to simply struggle helplessly with sin. 
Jesus understands temptation. Jesus understands the trials and the difficulties that we experience. And by his grace, we can approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. So there are three things that we can say about the Christian's relationship with sin. The Christian is not yet done with sin. We live in a sinful world. We are sinful by choice and by nature. We will continue to encounter it and to struggle it until the day when we are made like Jesus. But the Christian cannot live indifferently to sin. We cannot live indifferently to that which took Jesus Christ to the cross on our behalf. But the Christian is no longer a helpless victim of sin. Something profound has happened. And while we will continue to encounter it and to deal with it, while we cannot be indifferent to it, by the grace of God we can find grace to help us in our time of need. So finally, what can we say about the Christian's relationship with sin then? How does this actually work out in practice? Or how should it work out and how should we think about it? Again, three things I want to say about the Christian's relationship with sin. First of all, we need to be realistic. That is to say, we need to be honest. First John chapter 1, verse 8 is written to those tempted or actually indulging in the notion that immorality was a matter of indifference for those who had special spiritual insight. People tended to think that if they had a unique special insight to God and to his ways, it was a temptation in the first century, then that really how they lived and how immoral they might become was, was actually irrelevant because morality wasn't an issue. And John says to such people, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In Romans chapter 7, that passage we were looking at earlier, Paul personalized the issue by writing in the first person. If you remember the verse that we read, verse 21, I find this law at work in me when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. We need to be honest realistic about the nature of sin in our own lives. To fail to be honest about the nature and extent of our sin is to mock God. It is to belittle the cross. It is quite simply to perpetuate our rebellion against God. John says in 1 John 1 verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. In being realistic about sin, confession of sin must always be part of our private and our corporate worship. It must always be there because it states the truth and it causes us to face the truth about ourselves. Confession must always be there because it honours God's righteous judgment about sin. To, be fail, to fail to be honest about sin is also to mislead others who aren't Christians. Sometimes when Christians talk about their past sinful lives uh, they, and claim to be saved but fail to acknowledge that they are still sinners, they distort the gospel message. I think too often, certainly many years ago, people in Northern Ireland have heard, whether it was intended or not, a kind of self-righteous priggishness from evangelicals, which is not the true gospel at all. Sometimes we bemoan the lack of interest in the gospel, but maybe fail to see that we are part of the cause of the apathy. 
If people hear self-righteous condemnation of sinners outside the church, but see the same sins going, inside, going on inside, who can blame them? Our language needs to be honest. When we stand up, it must not be to communicate to people, I'm saved and I condemn your sinful attitudes and practices. We need to make sure that what we communicate and what is heard is, I, a sinner just like you, have the joy of knowing that through God's kindness, I am delivered from the just and fair wrath of God on me, a sinner. And I have come to share that good news with you, my fellow sinner. There just needs to be an honesty about the way we talk about our own sin. And if it's not there, not only does it dishonor God, it distorts the message of the gospel. The Christian of all people should be the person who is able to stand up, put up their hand and say, I am a sinner. We need not only to be uh, realistic and honest about our relationship with sin, we need also to be repentant. In 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, John goes on to say, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He points out in a previous verse that we must walk in the light. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Repentance is more than simply confession. It's more than simply admitting we have done wrong. Repentance is more than simply feeling sorry and saying sorry. Repentance is about whether or not we change direction and seek to change our attitudes and our actions. And the Christian's response to sin has to be to acknowledge it, to apologize for it, but then to seek to amend the way we think and the way we live, bearing in mind that we will continue to have our struggle with sin until the day when we are made like him. Repentance is not offering the parts of your body to sin, which Paul talks about in Romans 6, but rather to God as instruments of righteousness. So we need to be realistic. We need to be realistic for our own sake, to honour God and for the sake of others. We also need to be repentant. It needs to become part of our vocabulary. Sometimes as Christians, I think we have left the term repentance back at conversion, as if that was it done, that was it over. But given the nature of our lives, repentance is something that should be part of our ongoing experience. And finally, I'd say we need to be resolute in the way in which we think about and deal with sin. You might like to turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 because there's a, a passage there uh, which is quite helpful in this, I think. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses uh, 1 to 3 writer of Hebrews is constantly encouraging people to press on, not to become discouraged, not to give up. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, 
so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews recognizes that running a race is no easy task. That being up for perseverance and keeping on, keeping on isn't easy. And in chapter 11 he gives us a whole list of people who ran the race well as witnesses to encourage us. But he brings it all to a climax by encouraging us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Who for the joy set before him, the joy of your salvation, endured the cross, scorned its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and 22, he says to Timothy, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So how do we do this? And how does this process of sanctification actually work in our lives? How do we become resolute as we repent of our sin and are realistic and honest about our sin? Well, we use the means that are, that are at our disposal. There is the Scripture's instruction. The Scripture is full of instruction to us about what it means to follow in the paths of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, and particularly, as I say, from verse 1 on, you have a very detailed, helpful, specific piece of scripture that deals with the whole issue of sin and names it and helps us identify it and says since you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above set your minds on things above put to death what belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry and part of what has been deposited in your account if I can put it that way is the scriptures that you have before you The more we attend to the scriptures, the more time we give to the study and the reading of scriptures, the more conscious we become of what it is God would have us be. The more clearly we see the models and examples that are there for us in scripture, those that are warnings and those that are encouragements. The more we understand the resources that God has put at our disposal through prayer in approaching his throne of grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. So part of what has been deposited so that we might deal with this relationship that we have with sin, despite the knowledge that we are accepted by God, is the use of Scripture before us. Secondly, there is the use of Christian fellowship. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, you might like to go back to that, and um, to page 1203, there is an encouragement to carry on in Christian fellowship. Verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, See to it, brothers, That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we have at first. Just as has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Quoting from the Old Testament. Part of what has been deposited uh, in your account, as it were, are your brothers and sisters, is the community of God's people. As we come together to worship and are directed in our worship and in our songs and in our prayers and in our reading of Scripture, back to the things that matter, back to the things that really count as far as God is concerned. And once we separate ourselves out, we begin to deceive ourselves 
we begin to find it much more easy to simply mislead ourselves as to the true nature of our lives and our relationship with God. And thirdly, the means at our disposal is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to end by reading a section from Galatians chapter 5. You might like to turn to that. Because it's a very helpful section on this particular theme. You'll find it on page 1172. In the book of Galatians, Paul has been really struggling with the churches in Galatia. He's struggling with the fact that um, although they know that Christ died for them and died to deal with their sin, they're allowing themselves to be intimidated by people who say, well, you need something more. Your justification, your acceptance before God doesn't simply depend on what happened at the cross. It depends on whether or not you are a Jew. It depends on so many other different kinds of things. And Paul's been struggling with this with them and trying to help them to understand that this is not how it works. And he says in verse 13 to them, because this is the theme he wants them to understand. He wants them to understand about freedom and the freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say this. So I say live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. There's that thing from Romans chapter 7 again. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. In this passage and in this section, Paul encourages us to keep in step with the Spirit. It is the Spirit who will bring conviction and understanding about what it means to deal with the issue of sin in our lives. But it is the Spirit who will bring difference and change, who will bring the things that honour and glorify God, that help us to live the kind of life we ought to live, will help us avoid this danger of becoming conceited, provoking and envying one another. The means at our disposal, as we seek to realistically be honest about the nature of our sin, as we seek to be repentant about it, as we seek to deal with it resolutely in our lives, are the scriptures which are before us, the encouragement and help of our Christian fellowship with one another, and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. There isn't anybody in this room who I think would be foolish enough to say that they don't sin. Or that you don't grieve God. Yet there isn't anybody in this room who cannot say, if their faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, that I am accepted. 
I am accepted by God, not because of what I am or because of what I do, but because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And there isn't anybody in this room who isn't going to have to address the issue, well, that being true, here I am, still a sinner. Which is why it's important for us to understand and to know that I am delivered from the tyranny and the power of sin. So I need to honestly address it in my life. I need to seek to change. I need to seek to be resolute in applying those gifts and graces that God has given me. May God help us to do that and to do that for his glory and his grace and our sense and knowledge of his goodness in our lives.